Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with all of you this morning, as always. Uh, it's a joy to uh, obviously fill in for Pastor Blake. And uh, before I start, just want to open up in prayer. Uh, pray for us, pray for Pastor John, and pray for um, the service this morning. So would you just join me in a, a moment of prayer, please? Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, and mercy in our lives. We thank you for the forgiveness that you offer. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. And we thank you that the message we heard last week on the resurrection uh, is why we can have hope in this life uh, in knowing that in the next life, we will spend eternity with you. And uh, this morning, we would like to lift up our pastor to you, Pastor John Blake, and just pray that he enjoys his time with family, that he enjoys his time away, that he would be able to rest, rejuvenate, and come back and just uh, uh, continue to do what he does so well, which is lead this church. And we are so thankful for him and his service. Lord, we ask that you just would speak through me today. Um, allow your word to go out into the hearts of the congregation today. And uh, we thank you for loving uh, us, and we uh, thank you for giving us the ability to love others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, good morning. Um, before I start, I want to just make uh, mention of a few things. So I've been here about six weeks now, uh, and I wanted to just start off by saying uh, thank you for your support, your love, and your encouragement to not only me, but my family as well. And uh, just the tra making the transition to come here um, just uh, so much easier. It's been a joy to be able to serve in this church. It's been, able to jo it's been a joy to serve uh, alongside um, my colleagues, uh, John, Joseph, Keith, and uh, Joseph has been a joy to work with uh, him and his wife with the youth group. And we really, really um, are excited about the vision uh, that we have in terms of what we're trying to do there. So um, as uh, Mr. Bellabode mentioned, uh, we are in the process of trying to build a youth room, um, and, which is going to start Monday. Um, if you have any interest in connecting or partnering with us on that, as he said, you can connect with me. Um, and also I wanna make mention before I start, if you have a student that you want to attend youth group and you don't know how to get them there or you're just unsure about you know, what that may look like, um, we certainly want to do whatever we can do on our end to help make that happen. Um, we certainly want to make sure that our youth group is um, you know, thriving. We want to make sure that it grows. We want to make sure that we have uh, just a healthy group there. And we certainly want to make sure that if you have a child that wants to attend, that they can attend. So. Um, just want to make sure that you know that we will do whatever we can do to make those arrangements to make that happen. So um, just get with me after the service if you have a student that you'd like to uh, attend. Uh, so today's sermon um, will, in some sense, connect with last week's. I was actually given the opportunity. Um, I spoke to Pastor John, and I said, what do you think I should preach on for Sunday? And he said, well, why don't you do a sermon on the proofs of the resurrection? And I thought, oh, I can do that. And so one of the first things that came to my mind was the movie, uh, The Case for Christ. I'm sure a lot of you have seen that movie. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of proofs in the Bible. And uh, I'm walking out the door, and this is, don't think this is a knock on John, but this is kind of comical. That's why I'm mentioning it. I'm walking out the door uh, last Friday, and Pastor John stops me, and he says, hey, I want to just go over my sermon real quick with you. And 
just show you kind of what I got. And I was like, oh, sure. So he's going through, and he's reading the sermon, and I'm thinking, he gets to about the fifth or sixth page, and I'm thinking, wow, that sounds a lot like mine. <laughs> and then he gets like to like the second to last page, and I'm thinking, I'm going to have to rewrite a whole other sermon. And so I did. Um, I had a, a sermon, because you can only do really one sermon on the proofs of the resurrection. So I wanted to do a sermon today that would, like I said, in some sense connect in terms of uh, what we talked about last week, which was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so today, um, what, I want to be talk, what I want to talk about is the Holy Spirit, and I'll explain why. Uh, and I want to talk about its role in our lives, not only the role that it plays in our lives, but um, how we can maximize the benefits of the Spirit dwelling within us. Um, and apart from our salvation, this in my eyes, this is the most beautiful gift that God has left us with. I'm not sure if many of you would agree with that, but I think without the Holy Spirit, um, we're pretty much left to wander on our own. And so the Holy Spirit is a beautiful thing. Um, and so I would like to kind of dig a little deeper into that. In the early 70s, there were two British men named Pete Ham and Tom Evans, and they put their brains together to write a song called Without You. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but people usually instantly recognize this song today. Ham wrote the entire song, but Evans, he didn't like the chorus. Later, Evans would write the intense and dramatic words of the chorus that made this song a classic. If you're not familiar, it says, I can't live if living is without you. I can't live, I can't give anymore. I can't live if living is without you. I can't give, I can't give anymore. If you need a more modern version and you're in the audience, and you're a little bit uh, younger, I suppose you could go with a great hymn from the 80s by the Scorpions called the, uh, it's called I Can't Live Without You, if you, if you need a more modern version. However, the reason I say that is um, God did not create us to function well apart from other people. Not only did not create us to function well apart from other people, he certainly did not create us to function well apart from him. We need to live in this life connected to God. We need God. We need to know that he is with us and he will help us no matter what this life or this earth may throw at us. We spoke last week on the resurrection, as I mentioned, and I wanted to look into what followed. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he gathered his followers together for his final words before he would leave planet earth and ascend to his father in heaven. As we can see on slide one here in Matthew chapter 28 verses 17 through 20, it says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So these are the last words that we read in the book of Matthew. And if you're familiar with that story, and you're familiar with, uh, again, how that story ends, Jesus tells his followers, his disciples, that he's going to be leaving, and there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of, like, there's a lot of misunderstanding, like, well, where are you going? Why are you leaving us? You know, and, and you can only imagine, if you had spent time with Jesus, how you would be really, really confused and troubled and, and, and hurt and baffled by that, and so, Jesus promised his people, though, then and us today, that he would always be with them. And, you know, you see, uh, you know, you have Doubting Thomas. And, you know, uh, this morning I want to discuss the beauty and, and the comfort we can have in the fact that even though Jesus was, in fact, resurrected to sit at the right hand of the Father, 
He did not leave us alone, and we do indeed have a comforter living in and amongst us. We have a comforter living with us. So I personally believe that he did this because he knew that we would have doubts and fears. We would have struggles in this life. And just as mentioned in uh, Matthew 28, 17, it says that they, they doubted. So I suppose the most important question would be why. Why did Jesus feel that when he ascended into heaven that we would need the Holy Spirit? Why, why did he feel like we would need a comforter? And so I, I guess, you know, why would he just... I looked at this and I thought to myself, you know, prior to the Holy Spirit indwelling believers, which comes after he ascends into heaven, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would only come upon people just for, for temporary moments, right? It, it wasn't a permanent indwelling. And so now today, we have that permanent indwelling within us. And so um, I want to say, in, in, you know, without the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, we're not able to truly understand Scripture. Uh, there are a lot of things that the Spirit does, but one of the things it does is helps us understand who God is. And furthermore, uh, if we don't have the living God dwelling within us to help us understand when we're coming off the rails, uh, it's a little bit troubling. The Holy Spirit's role in our lives is to, to convict us of sin and to let us know when we're wrong. So this morning, I'm going to talk about the importance of walking in the Spirit and the benefit it has in each of our lives. In doing this, I landed on a passage that Paul preached to the church in Galatia. Um, the, the scripture that we're going to be talking about today, that our, our uh, sermon and our text is going to be on, is in the book of Galatians. Um, and up here you'll see on uh, our slide, it says that uh, in Galatians 5, 16, and 17, that we're to keep in step with the Spirit, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's in Galatians 5, 16, and 17. Um, there's also in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, I'm not going to go through the entire text, but Paul goes through a text where he talks about, I don't understand my own actions, I want to do this, but I keep doing the wrong thing. I'm sure if you've read the book of Romans, you're familiar with that. He talks about how it's no longer him doing, doing it, but sin that dwells within him. And so, you know, I, I, I looked at these two texts and I realized that the Holy Spirit's role in our lives is to ultimately oppose the old man. There's the sinful man that lives within us, and then there's the Holy Spirit that lives within us, and they are constantly at war with each other, and the Bible tells us that. So as a Christian, I enjoy a wonderful freedom in Christ. I'm sure you do too. The beauty in becoming a Christian is that you enjoy you know, an ultimate peace that we can't get from the world. It is truly the desire of Christ that we'll be free and that you would be free and that I must not allow that freedom to become a license to sin. If I'm not careful, the desires of the flesh, they can wreak self-destruction. Self they can actually prevent um, us from doing what God intends for us to do. And the Apostle Paul instructs us to walk in the Spirit because he knows this. A walk in the Bible is often a metaphor for practical daily living if you're not familiar with what that means, actually, when they're referencing a walk, it's a, a metaphor for practical daily living and how we should live as a Christian. The Christian life's a journey, and we are to walk it. We are to make consistent forward progress. The biblical norm for all believers is that they walk in the Spirit. On slide three, we can see up here, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. We see that in the book of Galatians. 
Let us walk in the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit gave us life in the new birth, and we must continue to live day by day in the Holy Spirit. To walk in the Spirit means that we yield to His control. We follow His lead, and we allow Him to exert His influence over us. To walk in the Spirit is the opposite of resisting Him or grieving Him. You can, in fact, grieve the Holy Spirit. If you choose not to follow and be obedient to what the Scriptures say, you can grieve the Holy Spirit, which, in turn put you in a position where you uh, will not feel right. You'll feel convicted, as I said. You might feel a disconnect from God. Um, you will feel emotionally unstable. So to walk in the Spirit means that we yield to his control, we follow his lead, and we allow him, as I said, to exert his influence over us. And so um, as we look up here, I want to talk about today, uh, as we look at our next slide, what are the benefits of walking in the Spirit? So what exactly are the benefits when, I, when, when Paul says to walk in the Spirit, what, what are those benefits? So to walk in the Spirit, we're united with Him and then we're bearers of the fruit that the Spirit produces. I'm sure if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you're familiar with the book of Galatians. It talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It talks about what we gain when we become believers. If you're not familiar with what the fruits of the Spirit are, on our next slide, um, they're listed in the Bible. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are all things that we get when we become believers. Those are also things that we get. These are characteristics that we may have some ability to display apart from the Holy Spirit, but my personal belief is that we can't actually maximize or truly understand what those characteristics look like without the Spirit of God living within us. I'm sure most of you would agree with that. And so today... I would say this. I'll give you an example. Um, in my life, I looked at love. Some people see love in, a, in, a, in a various ways. People see love uh, based on the way they grew up. And so for me, growing up, it's kind of odd to say this, but I viewed, uh, when I, my, for my father, I viewed love uh, when he would buy me things. That was my, that was my like, thought of what love was. Um, very distorted view. I'm sure you would all agree with that. Love is not, you know, buying somebody something. I mean, it, I guess it can be an act of love, but that was how I actually saw the entire view of what love was. So it wasn't until Christ came into my life that I truly began to understand the meaning and value of love. Obviously, when we look at Christ's sacrifice on the cross and the Father making that sacrifice, that's the greatest act of love that's ever been displayed. And I didn't actually understand that until I became a believer. Again, each of us, say we all have a different understanding of what each of these fruits of the Spirit actually mean. And we all display different levels of these fruits in our lives, depending on where we're at in the sanctification process. But we all should be, as believers, displaying those fruits of the Spirit. In some sense, when somebody looks at your life, they should see these fruits in your life. The Bible says that you will know them by their what? By their fruits. So when you look at a believer, you should see these things. And so without those things, um, and again, we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, live those out perfectly, but they're things that we should be able to, uh, to, to walk out. So just to give you a few brief examples in the Bible, those who walk in the spirit, who walk in love, they, they live in love for God and their fellow man. Our, our motto here is to love God to, to, to love each other and to love those who don't know God, right? That's our motto in this church. When you look at joy, those who exhibit a gladness in what God is doing and what he will do. When you look at peace, 
Uh, our lives as believers, is not, we're not defined by worry and anxiety. When you look at um, patience, uh, believers are supposed to be known for having a long fuse. We don't lose our temper, right? We're, we're able to have self-control there. When you look at kindness, we show tender concern for the needs of others. And when you look at goodness, our actions should reflect the virtue of holiness. Those who walk in faithfulness, we're steadfast. We're steadfast in our trust of God and his word. And those who walk in gentleness, um, our lives are characterized by humility and grace and thankfulness to God. And lastly, those who walk in self-control are able to display moderation, constraint, and the ability to say no to the flesh. As I told you, you're always at war with the flesh, and that self-control gives you the ability to oppose that. As we look at our next slide, uh, slide six here, it says, those who walk in the Spirit rely on the Holy Spirit to guide them in thought, word, and deed. That's in Romans 6, verses 11 through 14. They show forth daily moment-by-moment holiness, just as Jesus said when he was full of the Holy Spirit. And he left the Jordan, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. I'm sure you're familiar with that story. <clears throat> to walk in the Spirit is to be filled with the Spirit, and some results of the Spirit's filling are thankfulness and joy. Those who walk in the Spirit follow the Spirit's lead, and we can see in the book of Colossians up here that those who walk in the Spirit let the Word of Christ dwell in them richly. We're going to get to this uh, text here and why this is important. They let the Word of Christ dwell in them richly. So the Spirit of God uses the Word of God for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's in 2 Timothy 3.16. Their whole way of lives, our way of lives as believers, is lived according to the role of the gospel as the Spirit moves us towards obedience. So when we walk in the Spirit, we find that our sinful appetites of the flesh, they don't have dominion over us any longer. So the things that used to be able to control me, the things that used to be able to run my life, the Spirit of God comes into your life, and it gives you the ability to refrain or say no to those things, not only just because you want to be obedient to Christ, but just because the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to resist or refrain from those things. Without the Holy Spirit, you're fighting on your own. And when you're fighting on your own, it's really, I hate to say it, but you don't stand much of a chance. It's just inevitable that we're, we're going to fall. So the ultimate goal is that we become more like Christ and less like the old man. Now, the question raised by some Christians uh, on our next slide is, how do I walk in the Spirit? How exactly do we do this? How do we spend each day waking up, asking ourselves and asking Jesus to help us to walk in the Spirit? What things must I do to be consistent in this walk? Though there are many things we must do, I'd like to just... To discuss three things this morning, I believe, that should be at the very top of our list of priorities when it comes to fulfilling Paul's instruction to walk in the Spirit. Here are a few practical ways that we can be intentional about uh, fulfilling God's call and Paul's exhortation to the, uh, to the church in Galatia. Our next slide up here says, to walk in the Spirit, we must study God's Word regularly. Regularly. I knew I was going to have trouble saying that word. We have to study God's word on a regular basis. So to walk in the spirit, we have to study God's word on a regular basis. You see this in Psalm 119, 11, uh, in context. It says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In order to refrain from sin, you have to have the word of God living and dwelling within you so that you know what is opposed to whatever it is that you may want to act out upon. We need to know the will of the Spirit before we can walk in agreement with the Spirit. We learn His will by studying His Word. If you're asking yourself today, why do I need to read the Word, and what is the true value and benefit of it? Well, I'm here to tell you today that the answer is that it's truly never-ending, and it's inexhaustible. 
You can read the Bible a hundred times. I promise you this. You can read it a hundred times and it will never ever end in terms of what you can get in terms of benefit and value in terms of growing as a believer. It is a never ending flow of information and wisdom and we have to understand that just because you may have read a passage once maybe five years ago and it was applicable applicable in some sense at your in your life at that point you may read that passage a couple years down the road and you're in a different place in your life and it may have a totally different application has anybody ever been there i'm sure you have and so it's important that we understand that it's never ever We're never going to reach a place in our lives where we can say, oh, well, I've read the Bible. I've gotten through it. I understand everything. It will never happen. There's no pinnacle. There's no mountaintop where we say, I've got it all figured out. I can put this thing down. Um, I've read this book, and I'm good, right? It just doesn't, doesn't work like that. And so because of that, I would say this. We should read and study the Bible because God does not change and because mankind's nature doesn't change. It is relevant for us as just as relevant today as when it was written, which is a crazy thought. While technology may change, mankind's nature and desires, they don't change. We find as we read the pages in biblical history that whether we're talking about one-on-one relationships or societies, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says there's nothing new under the sun. And while mankind as a whole continues to seek love and satisfaction in all the wrong places, God, our good and gracious creator, tells us what will bring us Lasting joy, it's his revealed word, and the Bible is so important that Jesus said of it, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Matthew 4.4. In other words, if we want to live life to the fullest as God intended, we have to listen and heed to God's written word. I want to give you three things that we gain by reading God's word. We look up here on our next slide. The first thing that we gain is that it teaches us his will and the ability to understand right from wrong in the eyes of our Father, not in terms of what the world may say is right and wrong. So we all know that there's a written law that the world puts out for us, and we know that there are certain things that we don't do. You don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't steal, but there are also things that, as believers, that we're instructed to do that, um, you know, we may not understand uh, apart from God's word. Actually, we definitely don't understand apart from God's word. You've all heard somebody say, um, do you think you're going to go to heaven when you die? <clears throat> Excuse me. You might hear somebody say, yeah, I do. And you'd ask them, well, why do you think that? Well, because I'm a good person. You're a good person. Well, the Bible says that there's no one that's good, that we're all evil, right? And so and in my mind, I look at the Bible as a way of instructing me and showing me where I may fall short in terms of that's our, my, our next point. Number two, it shows us where we will fall short in terms of God's will in our lives. You can see that in Hebrews 4.12. You know, we have a view of what we think we're doing in terms of uh, walking this walk and whether or not we're walking the line in terms of obedience with the Lord. And there have been plenty of times in my life when I thought I've been walking that straight line and the Holy Spirit comes in and is firmly convicting me and letting me know that I'm not where I think I am, Right? And it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a tough thing because, you know, nobody wants to have to admit or acknowledge when they're wrong or or when they're not in the place they think they are. But it warns us when we fall short of his will. And the third thing is that it nurtures our soul. That's in Deuteronomy 8.3, if you want to find a text that connects with that. It nurtures the soul. Um, Each day we wake up, 
when we go to live our day-to-day lives, um, we don't know what's going to come up. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what struggles we're going to face. We don't know what struggles our families are going to face, our friends. And so for us, having the Word of God, uh, you know, being able to read the Word of God, allowing it to nurture our soul gives us a, the ability to be able to deal with those things in a different manner. The second thing on our next slide is the benefit uh, of walking in the Spirit. Uh, and, and the benefit I want to talk about is to walk in the Spirit and how to walk in the Spirit is to, to watch and pray. To watch and pray. It says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I've talked about the battle between the Spirit and the flesh several times. That's in Matthew 26, 41. There are many occasions when we can be caught off guard and slip back into the old nature. As a believer, I'm sure you have walked this walk and you've lived in this life and you have slipped back into that old nature, hopefully not for an extended period of time. In the book of 1 John, it says that those who are a part of Christ, they don't continue to stay in that sinful nature, right? If you continue to walk in sin, it says that you're probably not a believer. So the role of the Spirit of God is to kind of pull you out of that. This is especially true for not spending time in prayer or in the Word. To watch and pray means to be awake and on guard all our waking hours so that we can see when sin is at, the, is at our door, desiring to entrap us. It means that we have a constant connection with God. Now, this may seem like a really difficult thing and, and really hard to process, but it means that we seek him for the power to overcome all sin. We must be sober-minded and watchful. Satan is always on the prowl. He's waiting for an opportunity just for that door to crack open and for himself to slip in. Now, I've been there. And if you give him... Just a small, small crack, he will come in, and he will try and attack. And so to let down our guard against sin for even a moment gives him the moment he's been waiting for. His whole desire is to turn us from God. If we're watching and praying, then, he, then we can resist him. We can be firm in our faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. And the Bible tells us that our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, the devil is waiting to devour you. It's interesting because a lot of believers, uh, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, God and the Holy Spirit, and we talk about how we know that he exists, and we are firm believers that the Spirit of God dwells within us. But it's kind of scary to me that, uh, and I'm speaking for myself, how much I, I don't spend time thinking about the enemy and how swift and cunning he can be. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna acknowledge and, and and admit that you know that God exists, you have to also understand that there is an evil that exists. And so again, we have to be able to watch and pray so that we don't give him any foothold to get in. There are many occasions when we we become vulnerable or expose ourselves to the enemy that can lead to a path of destruction or struggle. But here are here are a few. Um, you know, that the Bible says that we should be on guard against. The first one is in times of great sorrow. When you look at Luke twenty two forty five, when you are in a time of great sorrow, say somebody passes away or you're struggling with some, you know, illness or whatever the case may be, these are moments in your life when the devil will try and come in and, and get you and try and expose you and try and get you to uh, stray from your faith or knock you down. So uh, it's important that in times of great sorrow that we're even more fervent in our pursuit of God in terms of being able to read the word and pray to God. 
Second one is in times of boredom. This may seem like a really odd thing to, to list here, but I listed it because I found that in my own personal life, when we are in moments where we don't have anything to do, and I'm not retired yet, so I, I wouldn't know what that looks like in terms of being retired. Um, I certainly have not been in that moment in the last six weeks, so that's good. Um, but in times of boredom, when there's downtime, you guys know what happens. You leave your mind open to allow thoughts to kind of, oh, sorry about that. You leave your mind open to allow thoughts to kind of start cycling through there that don't need to be there. And so in times of boredom, it's important that we stand on guard. And in times of great need, you know, whether that be financial, whether that be uh, you're emotionally struggling, you're mentally struggling, you know, when we're in times of great need, these are moments where we must be on guard um, and, and have the word of God living within us and be prayed up and, and be able to use the word of God to combat um, the enemy. So in times of great need. On our next slide, I want to talk about a third and final point. To walk in the spirit, we must resist the devil. And I know we talked briefly about this, but to walk in the spirit, we must resist the devil. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The phrase resist the devil is found in James 4, 7, where the apostle James exhorts believers to resist the devil in order to cause them to flee or run away from us. To resist means to withstand, strive against, or oppose in some manner. Resistance can be a defense maneuver on our part, such as resisting or withstanding the temptation of sin, like I mentioned. Or it can be an action we take to use as an offensive weapon. Uh, the Bible talks about putting on the full armor of God in the book of Ephesians. And that's important on a daily basis that we are able to do that. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We use the scriptures to expose Satan's lies and temptations. And it's the most effective way we strive against defeating them. It is important to read this whole verse and understand it. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resisting the devil must be accompanied by submitting to God and submitting to the Holy Spirit. And so if you don't do that, um, we put ourselves in a position to be, uh, to be knocked down. A disobedient or unsubmissive believer will not see victory, just so we're clear on that. If we are disobedient and unsubmissive, we're not going to see victory. Jesus is our greatest example in resisting the devil. Prayer and God's word were his weapons. And I want to talk about three things he found and gained by resisting the enemy. You look in the garden and you see that Jesus was uh, probably in his weakest state where for 40 days he had fasted and prayed and um, he was led into the garden. And we find um, that he found, the first thing he found in resisting the devil is he found, the, uh, or in prayer, he found the strength to resist the devil. So in prayer, he found the strength to resist the devil. So again, we're talking about things that we can use to oppose the enemy. And so submitting ourselves to God constitutes being a prayerful person. The second thing we see in God's word is uh, we, Jesus found the wisdom to answer and rebuke the devil. When things come up that the enemy will throw at you, when he starts to throw these thoughts in your mind, when he starts to throw these things in our mind that we're not sure how to deal with, um, the wisdom that we find in the Bible gives us the ability to oppose and rebuke the devil in what he says. Every single time that the enemy offered Jesus something up, what did he come back with? He came back with his word. He came back with scripture every single time. And so if that's what he did, we should find it no different in doing the same. And the third point, finally, the devil left him. And this is why I firmly believe he was able to resist those temptations 
And so for us as believers, I would say this. You know, we are going to, we're going to have moments, uh, brothers and sisters, where as believers, we're going to feel weak. We're going to feel tempted. And I don't want, you know, if you're here today and you, maybe you're not a believer, I don't want you to feel like when you become a believer that everything's just peaches and cream and that everything's just going to go perfectly for you. There are going to be moments when uh, there's a struggle against fighting against that old man. And so it's important that we do understand that we have the word of God stored up in our hearts and we do have a healthy prayer life. And not only that, we do have people around us. We have a strong support system that we can go to in order to combat the enemy's schemes. And so today, you might be sitting there asking yourselves, you've told us how to walk in the Spirit, but how do I resist or refrain from gratifying the desires of the flesh? And obviously, you know, those three things that I had mentioned are helpful, but what exactly are the consequences if you choose not to? What if you choose just not to walk in the Spirit? What if you say, you know what, um, I'm going to do what I want to do. I want to see and I want to share with you what the Bible says about dealing with the flesh and the sinful nature. And this is going to come off as... Um, probably very, very hard to, uh, I wouldn't say process, but hard to understand and also hard to, you know, um, for me, uh, it, it's, it's a struggle and it has been a struggle to deal with certain things in my life, um, that have been deeply rooted, uh, in that sinful nature. But believers are told to take their old sinful nature and figuratively speaking, we're told to nail it to the cross. That's what we're told to do. Is take our old sinful nature, nail it to the cross. We crucify the flesh through repentance of sin by turning our backs on the old way of life. We say no to selfish and sinful passions, and we utterly renounce the flesh. It says, do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. That's Romans 6.13. In the ancient world, if you're unfamiliar, crucifixion was known as the vilest, most shameful form of death. I'm sure you've uh, heard it was reserved for the worst of criminals. Paul undoubtedly wanted his readers to understand that the flesh was not to be treated with respect, kindness, or even indifference. The carnal nature is so evil that it deserves nothing but the most dreadful pun punishments. Crucifixion was also one of the most painful forms of execution, and believers should not expect to put to death the flesh without experiencing some pain and suffering. And I, what I just shared with you, in a sense, is that when you are fighting against sin and when you do have something that you're struggling against, I want you to understand that it's not something that you may be able to deal with in just one day or even one week. Um, it's something that you may have to continue to pursue God and plead and ask him for help for months. I mean, and just so you're aware, and I've been in this position where you're putting out one fire trying to dealing with, you know, struggling with, you know, this particular sin, and then another one comes up, right? And so it's a constant battle where we're always trying to fight against the flesh. So the flesh and the spirit, they're in continual conflict with each other, and our daily calling as followers of Christ is to crucify that flesh says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because we have been delivered from sin and death to new life in Jesus Christ, we are to yield ourselves to God for his good purposes, and to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. In Colossians 3.5, um, as I talked about the fruits of the Spirit, in Colossians 3.5, it, it talks about what our sinful nature 
looks like sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry. So Paul's listing off things where he's trying to tell us, hey, these are things that are, that are wrong in terms of what the Bible says. So the crucify the flesh is to obey the call to Christian discipleship. It means losing our life to find it in Jesus. We are literally told to pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus, meaning that we constantly put to death the old nature and walk towards holiness through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. As we daily put to death the sinful nature, we begin to walk in victory over the flesh. Conquering the flesh is what Paul describes as walking in the Spirit. So that's our goal, is to conquer the flesh. So we are to live in this life. The process is called sanctification. As I told you that the Bible is inexhaustible, and then it's never-ending, and it's, it, it's something that you will never, ever be able to get every single bit of information out of, I'm also here to tell you today that until the day that you die, you will get better, hopefully, and you will become, the goal is to look more like Jesus Christ, but Paul says that we're running a race, that we're fighting a fight, we're fighting the good fight, right? So till the day that we die, it's to be understood that we're going to be constantly fighting against our flesh. Now, again, it's, it's not hopefully going to be as heavy as it was in the beginning of your walk. And as we get closer towards glory, hopefully we find more peace in knowing that we're walking in obedience with Jesus. But it is a constant battle. And so what happens, as I told you, if we choose to walk in the flesh and neglect the spirit? I think for the most part you guys know. But there's a lot of detriment that comes. And I thought it would be good just to list a few things that happen on our next slide here. The first thing that happens is that we fall back into our old sinful nature. This is something that obviously none of us want. We don't want to be walking in sin as a believer. We want to be walking in the Spirit, so that's not something we want. The second thing is our emotion, our, our minds become extremely unstable. Our emotions and our minds become extremely unstable. The third thing is we harden our hearts to the conviction and the call of the Holy Spirit. This is a tough one. When you're in a place where the Holy Spirit is no longer nudging you to do the right thing, You've probably gone down a path that you shouldn't have gone down or a road that you shouldn't have gone down. Uh, but through repentance and the asking of forgiveness, we can get back on track. The fourth thing is we miss out on the peace and joy that God intends for us to have in this life. And lastly, what I believe, and the most important thing we don't want to lose, is fellowship with our Heavenly Father. When you choose to not walk in the Spirit, and you choose to walk in sin and be disobedient and unsubmissive, you lose fellowship with your Heavenly Father. Now, I, I want to make mention of the fact that this is not something that is permanent. Um, the Bible says that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. But you can live in this life and live in a way that um, you're living in sorrow and pain and suffering because you chose to be disobedient. I want to say this in closing. To walk daily hand in hand with God, it's a beautiful thing. I'm sure a lot of you know that. It's something that every believer should experience and enjoy. However, the stark reality is it's a tough thing to do, and we don't always fulfill our responsibility to do it. And I certainly, as I mentioned before, will admit that I'm not perfect at it, and I know that all of us have not been perfect. But we're certainly going to fall short in many areas, and there will be times when it's a struggle to get up and spend time with God. And it wouldn't be fair if I didn't tell you what, the, you know, what those consequences and what it looks like if we choose to neglect that daily encounter with our Heavenly Father. And choosing to follow our own path, we're essentially saying that we don't need you, God. We don't need you, and we can do this on our own. 
And uh, you're essentially saying that you believe that you are capable of playing God in your own life. And it's simply not true. In John 15, 5, this is one of my most favorite passages in the Bible. Jesus says that I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I remain in him, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that text, but I want to ask this question. Do you really believe it's true that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing? And if you do believe that, um, yeah, I mean, I think you understand the point he's trying to make. And I want to let you know, brothers and sisters, we can do all kinds of things in this life. We can do good. We can have the best of intentions. We can give to the poor. We can feed the hungry. We can show up to church every Sunday. Um, we can read our Bible. And if we're not doing it while we're and we choose not to walk in the Spirit, we're not doing it with the right motivations, um, it has no value at all. Unfortunately, it has no value at all. In fact, the Bible says that our good deeds, apart from doing uh, what God has called us to do in His will and with good intentions, our good deeds are like filthy rags. And it's important that we remember that. So let us be prayerful and consistent in asking our Father to help us to see where we may be doing things for our own glory. Maybe we're doing things with the wrong motivation and with the wrong heart. Where we maybe just be going through the motions. Maybe we're just playing church and we're just showing up. I'm here today to tell you that if your heart isn't in the right place, unfortunately, in the end, you might not end up where you think you're going to end up. It's a scary, scary thought, and it's not something I want to say to get you to second-guess your salvation or to have you walk out of here thinking, do I really know Jesus? But um, I mention that because as a believer, you can lose that fellowship and connection with the Father, but it can be obtained again through repentance and, for, uh, and forgiveness. However, if you were to pass away today and never made the choice to truly surrender your life to Christ, if you really never made that choice and you were not absolutely certain there's no second chance for us in regards to obtaining that fellowship with God after we die. There is no second chance. I know there are religions that say that there are, that we can, you know, purge people out of hell and that, you know, there's this and that. But we see in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, I'm going to end with this story, and um, I think it's a fitting story. Um, we see in the story of the rich man and Lazarus that once a man passes away and he doesn't submit or surrender his life to Christ, that's it. That's it. And I want to read this story. It says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and he was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham from far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that's been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied that they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. 
No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, in closing, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So I say that to say this. Unfortunately, the Bible is clear that once a man dies, there is no way to get that connection with God. The good news is that it can happen today, right now. You're breathing, you're alive, you can ask Jesus to come into your heart and be the Lord of your life. If you're a non-believer today, I wouldn't let another minute go by where you have to worry about where you're going to spend eternity. I would not let another minute go by. If you're in a place of confusion, and this is all just head knowledge, maybe it's just like you know everything in your head, but there's no heart behind the walk, and there's no conviction, I would say that ask the Lord to help you in that area, and he will. In conclusion, I must mention one of two things that we will hear upon standing in the face of our Lord when we pass away. It's in the Bible. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Or he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Again, this sermon is not intended to scare you. It's intended to get you to think about whether or not we are on a regular basis walking in the Spirit, whether or not we actually have the Holy Spirit living within us. The Holy Spirit's a difficult thing to talk about because there are a lot of things that are not understood about how the Holy Spirit works and, you know, it's, it's total rule in our lives. But I want to say this, that um, I think as a church that this church does a beautiful job in terms of living out and being the hands and feet of Jesus in a way that shows that you do have the Spirit of God dwelling within you and that's a beautiful thing to be a part of. And for me personally, again, I, I, I preach this message knowing that um, you know, it, would be, it would be difficult in terms of being able to explain the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives because there are days when sometimes I feel like the Holy Spirit is really, really moving in my life and you can sense it, right? But there are also days when, you know, you don't, you don't sense it and you kind of get, you know, uh, for me personally, uh, I get a little bit discouraged, but I will say this, that I have made a decision in my life to not base whether or not I'm going to pursue God uh, on my feelings. And I, um, on a continual basis, just assume and ask God to fill me with his Holy Spirit. The Bible says that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there is, there are things that we need to do to have that happen. And as I mentioned, reading God's word, praying, asking for the Spirit to come and make it's dwelling within you on a regular basis is of the utmost importance. So today, I want to thank you for what you're doing with an upright heart, with the motivation that you have. Um, I want to close in prayer, and um, I also just want to say um, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come up and share with you this Sunday. Um, I will also be uh, here next Sunday, um, and I will be... Um, filling in for Pastor John as well as he is going to be away um, for another week. So again, keep him in your prayers. Um, my prayer today is that you're able to take something away from this message that uh, you will be able to apply to your life, that you will be able to uh, draw closer to God in a way that uh, maybe you weren't before. And most of all, my, my, my deepest desire for all of us is that the Holy Spirit would uh, be maximized in our lives, that we wouldn't just take, you know, just... The, the, the crumbs or the leftovers, that we would really do our best to ask God to let the Holy Spirit do things in us that um, are supernatural. I believe that, that he's capable of doing those things. 
So I'm going to close in prayer, um, and we will wrap up. Father God, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the Holy Spirit. I want to thank you for the role that it plays in our lives. Father, without the Holy Spirit, I know that we would all be probably aimless wanderers. I know that we would be in a position where we probably wouldn't quite understand our purpose in this life. We would not understand what we're to do, and we certainly would not understand your word in the way that you intend for us to understand it. And so as we go throughout our week, my prayer is that as we wake up each day and we study your word and we read your word and we pray to you, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to comfort us and just nudge us in ways that we know the Spirit is alive and well within us. It's the most important thing that we can have in this life is a connection with you, and that's via the Holy Spirit. So as we uh, close, I want to ask that each one here would have safe travels going to and from, uh, whether that be lunch or home, and also ask, Lord, that you would continue just to bless this church and this congregation. We pray for the process of transition, and Lord, we pray that you continue to put the pieces in place that we need to thrive as a congregation. Father, we love you, and we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much.